I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. What we'll be looking at in the Democratic debates starting Tuesday is a wide-angle portrait of a political class in recovery. An astonishingly big field, 20-plus candidates, 23 and you, we're calling them, 23 varieties of the How I Got Here immigrant story from 14 states of the Union. Seven candidates have served in the U.S. Senate, one in the vice president's office, six are women. The 58-year-old mayor of New York City is running well behind the 38-year-old mayor of South Bend, Indiana. They sound like this in the New York Times tease video online. I think that immigration is one of the greatest opportunities for the United States. There will not be American troops in Afghanistan at the end of my first term. The next president has, within her capacity, the ability to significantly reduce greenhouse gas emissions. I think uh, Israel's human rights record is problematic and moving in the wrong direction. Every day, 100 people die to gun violence, and we do nothing. Before those Democrats debate, our guests this hour are speaking to all of them. Stalwart Democrat of the Al Gore variety strikes our keynote, Reed Hunt has a sparkling resume in law, business, and public service. He was Bill Clinton's chairman of the Federal Communications Commission around the time the internet and then smartphones were transforming everything. He was an early Obama fan, and he's still devoted, but he has written a striking book titled A Crisis Wasted that argues the toughest burden on the Democrats for 2020 is the bad results that came out of bad thinking in the Obama years. It is true that we didn't have a Great Depression. We had a Great Recession. But over the 10 years, income inequality has reached a level never before seen in America. The failure of opportunity to be extended to everyone is absolutely vivid. You know, the billionaires seem to run the country. There's nothing wrong with being a billionaire, but that shouldn't give you the right to run the country. And disappointment is the watchword of the land. And it was very hard. It was impossible for Hillary Clinton to run on a campaign of more of the same. I think you would say to almost all of these Democrats that they've got a bug, a sort of political flu, a limp that they're not aware of. And it's called neoliberalism. Am I right? And would you spell it out? I think neoliberalism is the view that if you just trust the markets, the results will be good for everyone and could not possibly be better. If you just trust people in the buying and selling transaction of the world of commerce, then the greatest amount of wealth will be created. Well, the problem with with this is, especially in a technological age, especially the age we're in now, the benefits of value creation in the market accrue to very, very few. They accrue to the few percent who own virtually all the stock, and they accrue to the top management in the handful of companies that are the great titans of the markets. There are only two forces that can deal with hugely successful dominating firms and great centers of wealth. There are only mm-hmm. two, two institutions, and one is some other new technology or the government. And the job of presidents and the job of people in Congress is to use government in a thoughtful way to stand up for the reallocation of wealth and benefits so that society can operate on a 
on a basis that is fundamentally fair. Neoliberalism leaves it out entirely. Neoliberalism says we don't get involved with the business of recreating opportunity. We don't get involved with the business of being fundamentally fair. So the policies that were inherited by all the Democrats running for president in 2008, that's principally Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, those policies which had been developed over the previous 30 years were exactly the wrong toolkit for the great crisis of the winter of 2008 and 2009. Three things went wrong. Number one, we can see now that the Bush administration, principally Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson, allowed a situation to be created that trapped the Democrats into the single worst law ever passed by Congress. Oh, wow. That's quite, a, that's quite a statement. The single least popular law ever passed by Congress, and that's the bank bailout law, the so-called TARP. Now, there was only one person who wanted that law to be passed, and that was Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson. And he let Lehman go bankrupt in order to create a financial crisis that in turn would permit him to say to Congress, you have to give me the unfettered power to invest $700 billion in anything I want. He said, if you don't pass this, then the entire economy will disappear. Bernanke actually said, if you don't pass this over the weekend, the economy will essentially disappear. It was a gross exaggeration. It was hysterical, it was factually wrong, and it worked. Mm. Because the Democrats felt, we control Congress, we got this great candidate, you know, we've got to listen to this expert advice, and it was a trap. So right there, uh, Paulson shot the albatross and hung it around Barack Obama's neck, and that was never escaped. That was the first thing that went wrong. The second thing that went wrong is that as the reaction to the Lehman bankruptcy got worse and worse in October and then in November and then in December, in every single month, the economists failed to realize how severe the economic problem was going to be for Main Street. Wall Street was going to be taken care of because of TARP. But they failed to recognize how severe the economic problem was going to be for people who had jobs and who had houses. So they, so they said to Obama on December 16, 2008, in Chicago, we think there's going to be about three to five million foreclosures and people will lose their homes. And we have a plan to save about a million, a million and a half and let the others go under. That's a pretty cruel calculus. But what was really wrong with it is that it was not going to be that number. It was going to be 10 million. Hmm. That's one out of six of everyone who owned a house in America. Hmm. That's one out of four of everyone who had a mortgage on a house in America. And if you had a mortgage, that was for almost every American, your net worth. And when you walk away from that house, that means your net worth has gone to zero. And that's what we see 10 years later in the statistics the average net worth of Americans, the middle class net worth, that is not at all higher now than it was 10 years ago. So that was the second thing that went wrong, which is the economists underestimated how severe the problem is. And then the third thing that went wrong was January 10, 2009. On that date, at the request of Rahm Emanuel, 
uh, two economists uh, working for President-elect Obama, he still wasn't inaugurated, Jared Bernstein and Christy Romer, published a uh, report that said that with the stimulus that they had proposed, it was about $750 billion plus or minus, with that stimulus, unemployment would go from a peak of a little over nine down to just above seven by the time of the November 2010 midterms. Eight is the plimsoll line in politics. If unemployment is below eight and dropping, the Democrats are going to hold the House in November of 2010. So that's what the report meant. And it was factually wrong. Hmm. It was factually wrong. In fact, absent the stimulus, unemployment was going to be more like 12. And even with the stimulus, it was 10. And it stayed at that level for quite a long time. And the Democrats lost the House. They lost more than 60 seats. It was the biggest defeat in the House of any political party since 1948. And once the Democrats lost the House, poor President Obama lost for the next six six years the ability to initiate legislation, the ability to shape policy, the ability to get what he wanted out of the presidency. Those are the three terrible, terrible moments of regret. And those are the three things that caused the crisis to be wasted. You say those Democratic candidates are still facing a fundamental choice that Obama failed in, a choice between restoring the profitability of the finance industry or bailing out millions of families who'd been damaged in the downturn. Did the Democrats realize that those are the stakes? Well, the two dozen, some odd, almost two dozen candidates, they're all going to tell a story in the debates. They have to tell a story because it's true, and it's because it's where their voters are, a story about the horrible concentration of wealth at the very top, the failure of wages to go up for most Americans, the lack of opportunity, the huge student debt, the unaffordability of health care, and the extremely skimpy response to the crisis of climate change. They're going to have to tell that story. If they don't tell that story, and they're not going to get the votes in the primaries, but more than that, they won't be responding to reality in America. This economy is heading for a recession pretty soon. They're not going to predict the exact date, but it's pretty clear that the global economy is slowing and pretty clear that the American economy is slowing and pretty clear that the next president needs to be prepared to respond to it. Are you, are you, are you on that tip yourself that the, that the, oh, yeah. that the economy is The next is president has to be prepared recession. to respond to a slump. There's no question about it. I don't know when it's going to come. You know, if if I had an opinion about that, you know, we'd be on CNBC, right? But <laughs> I don't know when it's going to come. I'm only saying they have to be prepared to talk about how they would respond. And when they answer that question, they will be answering in a way that is completely different than the answers that were provided in the winter of 2008 and 2009. Climate change is a problem that you have to throw money at. And we have to throw public money combined with private money. And that wasn't the solution proposed in 2009. In 2009, the neoliberal solution was make the consumers pay more for carbon-based power, punish the consumers, and they'll move to clean. But in this go-around, we need to recognize that we have to make the middle class better off. We don't have to punish them. We have to make them better off. And that is going to be the 
big difference in the climate change proposals. There's going to be infrastructure plans. They were specifically rejected in 2009. There's going to be each of the candidates will have some version of a public option in healthcare that was rejected in 2009. Mm. So I'm saying that the neoliberal solutions of 2009, they just won't be advanced by the candidates. You won't even hear Joe Biden advancing them. That was Reed Hunt. His book is called A Crisis Wasted. Coming up, former Senator Mike Gravel of Alaska, himself a presidential candidate again, though not in the TV cast, wants to coach those Democrats on the U.S. abroad. This is Open Source. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. The Democrats in TV mashup next week are not Hillary Clinton's party, nor Barack Obama's. But who are they and whose are they and what's the test? We have one hour to set some benchmarks on money and jobs, equality and foreign engagement with former senator from Alaska, Mike Gravel, with the writer and rights lawyer, Randy Kennedy, and with Matt Stover. Wise in power politics beyond your 30-something years, Matt. I think you could recast the whole story, honestly, with this book forthcoming from you. I'm in a fever reading it called Goliath, about a tyranny of money on the verge of strangling American liberty and not for the first time. Make the case, Matt Stoller, and how it could inform a democratic campaign against Donald Trump. Welcome. Are you, you're, thank you. Thanks for having me, Chris. It's great to, great to chat. It's been so long. Um, so you're talking about, so my book is about monopolization. Is that what you... Concentration you of power. Financial, right. political, cultural. Right. So the, the book is called, the, the subtitle is 100-Year War Between a Monopoly Power and Democracy. And the story that I'm telling it bears directly on the kind of crisis of identity among the, within the Democratic Party and actually on the Republican Party as well, which is a story about how do you relate to concentrations of private power, to these large institutions called corporations and banks that for a really long time we thought were kind of these neutral technocratic institutions. But after the financial crisis and then certainly after the Trump election, we realize are very political institutions. And how do we relate to them? And we're coming out of this period of neoliberalism when, you know, as Reid Hunt put it, where politicians were kind of hands off, let the technocrats do their thing. And now we're in this position where we have to make democratic decisions about power. And we haven't done it in a long time. And so that's kind of where the debate is. And it's this weird moment where everyone's kind of grappling for new language to describe this. And they're very uncomfortable and voters are uncomfortable. And it's it's fascinating and it's weird. And that's where we are. <laughs> Here's the question that you say drove you through four years on this book. You right. say our leaders or it occurred to you, our leaders in the last decade responded to a financial collapse caused by concentration of wealth and power by pushing even more into the hands of the same people who caused the crisis. Why, you asked. What's the answer? Well, the answer is ideology. So uh, it, it's a story. It took me a really long time to figure it out. So I was working in the, the House of Representatives during 2009 during the bailouts, and I was like, why aren't we helping people in foreclosure? This seems crazy to me. And it's not because people in the White House or in Congress were bought off or that, you know, there was, yeah, there's money in politics, but it's because they genuinely thought that pushing money and power into the hands of, of oligarchs was a, was a good idea. They didn't see them as oligarchs at, at the time. They were like, well, you know, bankers know a lot about banking, so let's, let's listen to them. 
And that was really came from a kind of 1970s model of actually trying to liberate capital from the constraints that new dealers had put on it. Because in the 1970s, there was a whole series of problems of inflation and and uh, uh, and financial crises. The misery index. And the the misery index, right. And And you had a whole bunch of people who had been kind of persuaded by intellectuals on the right and the left. And on the right, it was the law and economics movement coming out of the Chicago school or the University of Chicago. And on the left, it was... It was um, Richard Hofstadter, John Kenneth Galbraith, and uh, um, C. Wright Mills, and a whole series of people who said, you know, we don't have to worry about corporate power anymore because they kind of figured that out. There are all a bunch of other issues to deal with, like Vietnam and pollution and so on and so forth. And so when you saw this crisis hit in the 70s, and it was really an economic crisis, a crisis of political economy, it was a lot of economics people who had answers. And their answers were, you know, bunch of things that we know of as deregulation and and going after unions and also relaxing antitrust. But fundamentally, it was free capital to, to financial capital to do what it wants. Your argument, had- your argument, Matt, is that it's a 40-year problem. And Jimmy Carter embodied it long before Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton got stuck with it. Make that point that it's not quite new. It's generational. It's maybe cyclical. But the, the FDR Democrats and the Jefferson Democrats before then, confronted much the same sort of concentration and stared it down. Yeah, I mean, so the East India Company in uh, the 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 1770s was it was a corporation, right? The East India Company, and it was a monopoly. And the colonists were afraid of the monopolization of the tea trade uh, because they thought, well, first you start with tea, and then you're going to eventually monopolize other. Uh, other important commodities, and you'll have total control over our communities. And so the the and they were doing it using tax policy. They were monopolizing using tax policy, but it was effectively a revolt against the an 18th century chain store controlled by uh, British aristocrats. And uh, so America was born out of an anti-monopoly sentiment. Um, Jefferson wanted an anti-monopoly pr- provision in the Constitution, and into the 19th century, the regulations on telegraphs um, and railroads and and telephones and steel companies and oil companies and so on and so forth. Um, That was all very deliberate and aggressive and assertive and into the 20th century. Bring it it to 21st and the 2020 candidates, Matt. Uh, Who among the Democrats could grasp your argument and embrace it? And would people believe him if if they said it? So really what we're dealing with is is a populist revolt about the concentration of power. And Bernie Sanders is the guy who kind of carried that flame in 2016, and you got a bunch of people that are trying to carry it in 2020, including Bernie. Um, but Elizabeth Warren is probably the most kind of most similar to old school populism. Let's fight concentrated power using the law and using democracy, um, and that's why sort of she's kind of having a, a breakout moment right now. And then you got a bunch of others that are sort of struggling, that are saying we can go back or we can kind of we can kind of make everything better, but without facing concentrated power. Um, and so that's kind of the debate that we have. And it's done in a very passive aggressive way because, you know, the specter of Obama hangs over everyone and the Democratic Party. Democrats, you know, they love Obama. They're nostalgic for him. But he did a bad job. He was a bad president and they don't want to go back to his policies. So candidates have to kind of thread the needle and say, I love Obama. He was great. He did everything right. But I'm going to do everything different. And that's a really weird like it's really weird um, uh, kind of rhetoric. Obamacare might be the symbol of all of it, uh, his greatest accomplishment and his biggest disappointment. Uh, what do you learn from that? And what can people say about it? Well, I find Obama- it interesting that they're saying 
a significant number of the of the 20 are saying better Medicare for all, which both Hillary and Obama rejected. Well, OK, so it's a perfect example. So in, in 2008, for a family of four who was insured, it cost fifteen thousand dollars a year uh, of healthcare expenditures and hospitals. Uh, but this year it's going to cost thirty thousand dollars a year for an insured family of four. Right. The quality hasn't gone up. It, it's just more expensive because of pricing power among hospitals and providers and pharmaceutical companies. Like Obamacare is terrible. And anybody who's interacted with the healthcare system knows it's terrible. And Democrats have a really tough drop problem, like facing up to that. Like we tried and it was bad. And it wasn't it's it, it increased the number of people who was in, who were insured a little bit. But for everyone else, for 90 percent of people who are already insured, healthcare system got worse. Is so there how a- do you. How do you ask, is there a breakout Democrat among the 20 who will say some of those unsayable things? No, I don't see one yet. I mean, you're going to you're going to start to see like I think that there, there might be some questions from from uh, from moderators saying, hey, you know, lifespan start that started declining in 2016. Did did the Obama administration do anything wrong? What are you going to do differently than Obama? And you're going to see um a bunch of candidates are going to have to answer that question, and they know that question is coming. And Joe Biden is going to say Obama was perfect. I'm his his third term. And there's a lot of Democrats that are going to find that appealing because they see Obama as a winner and they see everyone else uh, as a loser. So you're going to have to have an answer to that question because if you can't say if you can't make the po- the case that Obama's policies caused this catastrophic loss for the Democratic Party, then Democrats are going to want to go back to that. Stand by, Matt Storer. Randall Kennedy in our studio is a black activist lawyer, a writer, a teacher in the Thurgood Marshall civil rights tradition. Welcome back, Randy. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. Speak to these Democrats, all 20, from the intersection of many minorities, but maybe first your own hindsight on the Obama years. Well, um, I supported uh, President Obama. I still have great respect for him. I would take exception to Matt Stoller in calling Barack Obama a, quote, bad president. I'm not going to, I think that there were weaknesses. I think that he made mistakes. Um, That he became president of the United States was a miracle. He was in the position of first in our country in terms of race. He was Jackie Robinson. And that cannot be forgotten, I think, especially in light of the current occupant of the White House, Barack Obama, in terms of his intelligence, in terms of his graciousness. In in so many ways, Barack Obama deserves respect and should get respect. I'm not going to call him a bad president. That does not mean that we can't be, that does not mean that we should be nostalgic. That does not mean that we should be uncritical. What we should do is march forward, um, but without uh, castigating the former president of the United States. And looking forward, what do black leaders, you suppose, black followers, black people uh, expect from the Democrats now? First of all, the first thing to be said Uh, shouldn't have to say it, but it has to be said, this is the most important election, certainly in my lifetime. And one of the things that I think that anybody should see, I don't care what their race, 
when people, when these, when these candidates are vying for the presidency, I think I certainly want to get the feeling that they understand what is at stake, because I think that the future of the United States is at stake in a way that hasn't mm. been true maybe since 1860. So that's number one. And that leads to a second thing with respect to these upcoming debates. Um, I think, Chris, that you're right. It's, it's exciting. You've got all these people, many of whom are very smart, many of whom are very impressive. What I do not want to see is a firing squad. I do not want all these people to trample on one another, bruise one another, cripple one another. I don't think that's the mood. I mean, I, 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 I hope not. I hope not. But I, I, I think one thing that ought to be said is I think people ought to be very, be very forthright and say, I don't, I don't want that to happen. So be candid, be forthright, uh, level with the country, but don't shoot one another. Because at the end of this, one of these people, two of these people are going to go forward and I don't want them to have hurt one another. But, but quickly, Randy, what's the direction they want? Among the African-American candidates, for example, Cory Booker can look like a Wall Street Democrat. Mm -hmm. Kamala Harris made her name as a prosecutor, a law and order Democrat. What, what do we need and what do black people Black Need. people want to see uh, a good progressive in the White House, and more than anything else, they want to see somebody who's not Donald Trump in the White House. So black Amen. people, they're looking for somebody who is pragmatic, somebody who can win, and to win, to win, you're going to have to get people excited. You're going to have to draw out all Democrats who are registered. They're going to have to come out. And to do that, you're going to have to have people that level with people. Uh, you're going to have to have people who uh, show through their talk, through their record, through their passion, that they, that they understand that we are in trouble and we're going to need to see people that speak very directly to the concerns of Americans. What if they just tell the truth about how we feel? And you said it at the outset. Uh, confusion, depression, mystery, it's uncanny. Uh, Where in something vital is in danger. Matt Stoller, you say the, the spirit of the country is sullen. The spirit of the world is profoundly anxious everywhere. Explain it and speak to it on you know or find a Democrat Matt that that can speak that language. Let's we've got to be real. Well, there's a climate of fear in uh, the country and in the world, and it's it's largely coming from the commercial sector because you know your boss uh, has a lot of power over you, more power than they used to have. Um, your cable company has power over you. The Internet companies that you interface with, if you're a farmer, the agricultural um, Goliath that you're dealing with, like your choices are increasingly limited and your ability to interact with other citizens, exchange goods, services, ideas that's increasingly limited and narrowed. And um, and there, there's there's incredible fear. And I see it all the time among business people. And and that's really, I think, driving um, I think that's actually driving like kind of the subterranean part of our politics and causing enormous anxiety in, in kind of all of these weird ways, and not just among Democrats, but kind of among everyone, this kind of 
really, really strange pressure that's coming from the fact that we're transforming into an aristocracy. And if you don't get on that ladder, like... Or a money aristocracy, not, not really a quality aristocracy. No, actually, aristocracy. you're talking about like the feeder to the feeder to the feeder of Harvard, like these five-year-old kids or these, these schools, um, like this, this kind of obsession. You saw the, all those people trying to pay to get their kids into it. Like, that's weird, right? Because if it means like people are, know that if they don't, if, if their kids are not in the right kind of like place, then their kids are not going to be okay. And that's not what you can have if you want to have a democracy. That's a long-term problem, um, but it's getting much, much, much worse. And that's where the anxiety is coming it's true. from. true. We're all up on the wall there in games of, Game of Thrones I mean, uh, or in John Lanchester's book. It's a dangerous, dangerous time. Who speaks to it? And how can, you, how can a candidate not develop a, a candor that resonates I think the only one, I mean, right now, the, the one who's speaking to it, and this kind of is terrible, but I think Trump is speaking to it. I mean, Trump well, is Well, a candor that's ugly, demeaning, toxic. Uh, it brings everybody down. But there's got to be a way to be real without, without that. I have a well, candidate. I, I have a candidate who I think well, is... I mean, Randy, I, no, I mean, go for it, Matt, and then Randy. Well, look, I mean, I, don't, I think you're start, you see a little bit of that kind of... Like, I, I, I'm just going to have to disagree with Randy. Like... I'm sorry, but Obama did a really bad job, and people are in really bad shape because he promised a lot, and the thing, things got a lot worse. And because of that, because of the inability to just admit that and to say the things we tried, you know, we gave it a shot, but we did a, we did a bad job, it means that people are really feeling hopeless because they don't actually, they, they're losing their faith in democracy because the last time that they elected a president who represented the Democratic Party, things didn't work out, and their lives got worse. And this is true, like across every racial group. And people have not admitted that because they haven't admitted it. They're afraid to go forward because they don't actually know that anything else is possible. And that is a profoundly dangerous and difficult thing to, to talk about. I think Buttigieg is talking a little bit about that, although I think, you know, he's kind of a con artist. And I think you've got uh, Bernie talking a little bit about it. And you've got uh, Warren talking a little bit about it. You've got uh, Cory Booker talking a little bit about it. But you got Tulsi really Gabbard talking a little bit about it, and she was there but, in Iraq. But it's true. But but you know, at the end of the day, every single one of them, you know, will go back and talk about how wonderful Obama was. And unfortunately, you really cannot address the the problems that we have in this country without recognizing that they happened under both parties, which includes both Bush. Somebody and Obama. in these debates is going to break that that pattern, Randy. Who's it going to be? I don't think. That again, I, I will stand by. I don't think that uh, the Democrats should trash the presidency of Barack uh, Obama. Uh, I don't think that's required in order to set forth a progressive agenda. Who is your thought on a constructive? I think that Elizabeth Warren is doing a very do fine too. job, and I think that she is showing the passion. I think that she is being straightforward, and I also think that she's showing a lot of grit and a willingness to stand up to that bully who's in the White House. I, I That's a good bet, I think. We're talking to the Democrats before they talk to us on Tuesday night. Coming up, what is it the Democrats... Democratic candidates are not saying about foreign policy. This is Open Source. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. We're pre-game with the Democrats. Let's change the angle with former Senator Mike Gravel 
on the Democrats and foreign policy. Senator Gravel, welcome to Open Source. Thank you very much. You, uh, I appreciate it, you're uh, a, uh, Chris. Pillar in your Senate years of the Vietnam opposition, alongside the likes of George McGovern and Wayne Morris, late 60s and 70s. You're the first presidential candidate ever drafted, in effect, by our friends at the Chapo Trap House podcast. Yeah, I'm still here. You're still there? Yep, I sure am. Speak to the 2020 Democrats about the American place in the world. The American place is declining, and regardless of what we're doing, uh, if we can avoid war with China as a result of the Thucydides trap, uh, we, we, would, we would really get by, and we, would, we could play a reasonable partnership with China. Uh, and if China got into the ascendancy, depending on, uh, on the nature of it, uh, we would have a a situation where the world can be properly governed. But the only way that that can happen is to realize world peace. And the only way that can happen is by reorganization of the United Nations, following the pattern and the model that we did in the founding of our government from a colonial system to a federal system, and uh, and that brought peace within the uh, 13 state communities. Now, uh, there's nobody, just nobody running for office that's talking about revamping the United Nations so that the General Assembly is, uh, is based upon population and that the Security Council has no veto powers. What, what, uh, it, what are you hearing between the lines or on them about foreign policy among these Democrats? I'm hearing that nobody's got a solution except Tulsi Gabbard that I can see. She's the only one that's mentioning the military-industrial complex. Now, here, here's the the 800-pound gorilla in the room, and nobody's talking about it but Tulsi, and and she's at risk because she's coming out of a state that essentially is is a military state, and so she's got the courage to stand up. Uh, and where where are the rest of the people? Has anybody? Have you heard anybody talking about the fact that the military-industrial complex is robbing our treasury for a bunch of crap, for a bunch of weapons that are not usable, and a bunch of wars that nobody wants to defend? You might be the only candidate, Mike Gravel, who will use the phrase "American imperialism." What do the other candidates know about empire that they're not yet? ready to say about global well, power and the way we well exercise well, first it. First off, they're not well read on the subject. Uh, the, the, what you hear are the cliches, that they sound good. Uh, and, and I've got to tell you, when the election's over, the prediction I made in 08, in that election, from the stage, I, I told the people in the audience, hang, hang on, because what you're going to see 4, 8, 12 years from now is the same old thing. And that's what we're looking at right now is the same old, same old, only by more people. And, and when you don't hear a, a candidate mention the military-industrial complex, you can guarantee that that candidate will be a puppet for the military-industrial complex. Well, it's, it's, it's that, but a drone of ours gets shot down by Iran, and suddenly we're on the verge of real, a real shooting war. We've got 
gunboats off Venezuela, a trade war off and on with China, a lot of anti-Russian reflexes still built into our discourse. Is somebody going to talk about it? No, not really. Not really. The, 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 uh, but keep in mind now, we've got a unique situation. We've never had a, 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 a fool, a narcissistic fool as president. That's, that's a new phenomenon. But, but the whole problem isn't just him. In, in fact, when you talk about how did, how did Obama get into office, there was a poll shortly before the election that, uh, that uh, Bernie uh, could beat Obama. Uh, Hillary uh, could not, and of course Hillary uh, and Wasserman Schultz and and Obama all cheated Bernie out of the nomination. That's so that's a we, strong view, but go ahead. Well, it's it's strong. It's factual. It's factual. The the uh, I, I watched it just as whenever Bernie would meet with Obama, Obama would have his arms around him, and Obama was trying to protect Hillary, and uh, and Hillary was damaged goods. You know, she went to Wall Street, loaded up her uh, her her satchel with a million dollars when she knew that year the next year she was going to run for president. Uh, what kind of an attitude is, does that have? But here, let's let's move a little bit beyond. Supposing the election. Now we're three votes shy in the Senate, uh, and supposing we get. Uh, 10 Senate seats that flip. Now, that's substantial. That won't give us enough to stop Mitch McConnell from stopping all the legislation with a threatened filibuster. This is exactly what happened to, uh, to Obama, and it'll happen again to whoever is president. And so when everybody's promising everything on the Democratic side, how the hell are you going to deliver when, when you don't have the control of the Senate? And when they had the Senate and the House, they didn't perform very well. They didn't perform. Keep in mind, that's when we gave the authority of uh, Bush to invade uh, Iraq. The, the it was it was a Democratic uh, senator that that ran the show in the Senate on behalf of the of, of the warmongers. Now, I want to go. I want to put it back to Matt Stoltz. Is the military-industrial complex almost unchallenged count as one of your monopolies? Well, there are a bunch of so it's interesting. So Bill Clinton in the 1990s actually allowed for um, the concentration of power in the defense industrial base. And you're seeing a whole series of mergers. So Raytheon and, and UT, United Technologies are merging right now. Um, but, you know, Mar Martin Marionetta became Lockheed Martin in the 90s and Boeing bought McDonnell Douglas. And so you saw just this incredible concentration of power. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the, the military industrial complex in the 1950s when Eisenhower was talking about it was powerful, but it made weapons and the, the, the weapons actually worked. And what increasingly happens today is the money that we spend on defense actually just goes to kind of hedge funds and private equity and sometimes actually helps build up the Chinese military. So it's a, it's a huge problem. Um, and uh, it, it's a, I would frame it slightly different than, than Senator Gravel. Um, but the, the politics of it are, are totally fascinating. We had actually a similar problem in the 1930s and we dealt with it. Um, I'm, not, I'm not totally on the same wavelength in terms of foreign policy, but, uh, but we have to start talking about 
how we build things and how and and how to defend ourselves in a, in an honest and real way. Randy Kennedy, it's I, your turn. I think that Senator Gravel is absolutely right in his criticism of the uh, Democratic uh, candidates, insofar as they've been so quiet on the question of foreign policy. If one goes back again, Obama, one of his calling cards was. I was against the Iraq war. I mean, there was a lot of talk about the Iraq war. There was a lot it of talk. Won the about, nomination. It won the nomination. It was very important. And uh, he talked a lot about drawing back the empire. He talked a lot about bringing the troops home. Unfortunately, didn't come through with as much as he had promised. But at least there was a discussion. Right now, unfortunately, there is not much discussion and I think that Democrats ought to uh, push the point to the people who uh, are vying for the White House. Come back to the purpose of all this. I, I, I keep wondering, what is this nomination fight trying to decide? Is the mission to win back those Obama Democrats who left Hillary high and dry in 2016? Or, or is it perhaps to, to rebuild a party from the bottom up? a party of the young for the 2020s. Matt Stoller. Well, we have really serious problems. I mean, my view is we have three incredibly dangerous trends. The first is big tech, which is kind of creating a totalitarian or would create a totalitarian system here. And we have to deal Sometimes with that. Sometimes known as surveillance capitalism. Sure. Uh, Facebook, Google, Amazon. Um, the second is China, which is, I think, an expansionist fascist power akin to Nazi Germany in the 1930s. Um, and uh, and then the, the, the third is uh, climate change, which is an existential threat that we really, I don't know how to deal with it, but we have to deal with it. And we're only a small part of it because we emit 15% of global carbon emissions. So we're going to have to do this on a global scale. Those are incredibly hard challenges. And we have white nationalism and fascism here, which I think is driven by um, some some deep seated forces that are rooted in political economy. So we have to we have like autocracy on all sides, but we also have incredible opportunity um, in the form of of a revived spirit of of um, of populism. And I think that that's very powerful. And and the last time this happened was maybe 80 years ago. And we can do incredible things. I mean, if we just let our democracy work and believe in ourselves. Randy, I think. I would agree with what was just stated. I would want to underline the fourth point, though, that is to say the internal danger. What we've seen over the past couple of years with respect to voter suppression, what we've seen with respect to changing the rules so that even when the voters speak, their voices are canceled. Look at what happened in North Carolina. Look what happened in Wisconsin. Look what just recently happened in Florida. It was a great day when the people of Florida uh, enfranchised the people who had been uh, imprisoned. But now that's being whittled away again. So the problem of democracy, of, 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 of maintaining faith with just basic democratic procedure in our own country, mm. seems to me that that is a big problem with a big question mark over it. Senator Gravel, I want to go back to your candidate, Tulsi Gabbard from Hawaii. I'm wondering... Why we don't know more about her compared because and no di, no no disrespect to the mayor, yeah. and the, no disrespect the to the mayor of South Bend, but a yeah. a road scholar, uh, gay road scholar from Harvard, uh, in the middle of the country is 
no more interesting to me than a woman uh, with uh, some Asian roots from Hawaii, which was, after all, an imperial conquest of its own once upon a time. But uh, Iraq, two tours uh, outspokenly against that war and wars in general. We ought to know her better. Why not? Because the military-industrial complex, which controls the mainstream media, does not give her the, the, the due that's required. We had a debate in Los Angeles in California, and she was one of, I think, 14, 15 candidates. At the end of the exercise, people just thought she did the job. And the reason is, is because she talked about war. She talked about solving the problems of war. She talked about the military-industrial complex. And the other candidates, I said it before, if, if a candidate's not talking about it, then that candidate is an empty shirt when it comes to being a puppet of the military-industrial complex. And, and so now we can talk about, and I, I, my colleagues here, uh, Matt, Brandy, and, and Reed, I, I just want to say that they're all talking within the context of representative government, not democracy, representative government. We don't have any democracies. We have representative government, and representatives are controlled by the money that puts them up and keeps them up into the context. So, so it's, a, it's a format designed by the framers of the Constitution who, satisf- who were the elites, who protected the elites, and protected slavery for infinity. And now we're living with that legacy, and you can go through all the elements of history, and you come to one simple question. Why were the people denied the ability to ratify the Constitution? Why were the people denied the ability to make laws? Our representatives in government uh, have a monopoly on lawmaking, and look what the hell it's brought us to. Now, what I'm suggesting is that what we do, if you want to get a solution to these problems that are going to get worse, not better, worse, regardless of who gets elected, uh, we need to find a way to turn around and empower people to make laws in partnership with their elected lawmakers. Senator, I want to ask Randy Kennedy a question, just because it's newsy, an important first time ever in Congress subcommittee hearing yesterday at length in the Times today about reparations for slavery, for Jim Crow, and for the unquestionably lasting effects of all that. Cash cannot pay that debt, but how might the country, all of us, pay it down? And will the Democrats want to get into that fight? Do you want to get into it? I sure do. Um, Randy Kennedy. Yeah. I'm glad that people are thinking about the inequities that have scarred our country so and that continue to hurt us so. The term reparations, however, is an abstract term. It can mean many different things. I want to see uh, people grapple in more detail with various conceptions of reparations. I don't want the reparations discussion to revolve around a magical word and people all of a sudden... Five acres and a mule, or you name the price. No, obviously that's... Well, but but, 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 but that's, that's a very possible outcome of this. I want people to ask, you know, be, be more detail-oriented. Uh, 
more focused on where we are now and what we must do. One problem with the reparations discussion, as it has been, is it is so black-white. We really do live in a multiracial society that needs to be remembered. Uh, You know, Jesse Jackson talked about the Rainbow Coalition. I think we need to keep that in mind. I think that any policies that don't have political traction is just spitting in the wind. So I'm for what can we do now on the ground to move our country forward? Matt Stover, bring it home. Have we heard your candidate or your ideal of a candidate or your favorite? Do you like Tulsi Gabbard half as much as um, uh, Senator Gravel does? And I do. Well, there's a bunch of things that I like about what, how, about what she says. I, um, you know, I think she's courageous. Uh, I like the, I think the arguments about war are, are really compelling. Um, I, you know, there's a, but I mean, I think I, I don't have a, a candidate in the race. I'd probably be leaning towards Elizabeth Warren. Um, if I had to, if I had to pick, I think she's laid out some really compelling arguments, but also, you know, my, I judge people by, have you stood up to power, right? Cause a lot of Democrats want to do good, but not a lot of, not everybody wants to fight bad, right? Nobody, not everybody wants to pay the cost of what it means to stand up to power. And I've seen her, you know, really just belay people on, uh, that came before the committee. She got the, the head of Wells Fargo fired. I've seen her take on power real way. And I, and people tend not to change. So if she takes on power, before she gets off, I think she'll do it when she gets off. Thank you, Matt Stoller. Thank you, Randy Kennedy. Thank you, Mike Gravel and Reed Hunt for getting us started. Our show this week was produced by Connor Gillies, Adam Coleman, and the artist Susan Coyne. Max Liebman is our engineer. Mary McGrath is our presidential candidate. I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time. Join us every time on Open Source.